when we were trying to decide what to cover next for our next bonus episode, we landed on The Cell, and I remember you said that it was super freaky, like it was it was kind of terrifying. You weren't looking forward to re-watching it for the episode, but uh, I don't know. I think I, I, like, I can see why it's spooky, but I also kind of dug it. Well, I mean, keep in mind, I was like 12 years old when it came out. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's different then. <laughs> yeah, so so I didn't catch it in theaters, but I definitely saw it like once it became available on like VOD and, and uh, movie channels back then when they had movie channels. I was kind of scared because it's one of those movies where you like, I watch with one eye open and one eye closed. Like, it is so terrifying, but I also can't look away because visually it is so exciting. Yeah. And it's really rare to see something... I think so artistic. It's not a film in the sense that like you watch it for the plot or the characters. No. But there's something visually that pulls you in in every scene or every frame. Yeah, obviously there's a lot to talk about here. Um, I, I'm i glad that I'm finally circling back around to one of the two movies that sort of uh, helped Tarsum Singh burst into Hollywood, as it were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was his directorial debut. Yeah, and I, I wasn't really familiar with it, and I've had a bit of a, a chip on my shoulder about Tarsum <laughs> for, which is, is unearned, you know, uh, for, for reasons we'll probably get into, but yeah. Okay, all right, well, let's get into it then. Welcome to the fifth bonus episode of the Extra Buttery Podcast, a free-flowing conversation between two guys who love film and TV. My name is Jason Chen. I'm joined by my co-host, Robert Snow. Hello, hello. And today we're going to talk The Cell. This is a film from 2000, directed by Tarzan Singh in his directorial debut, as we mentioned in the intro, based on a story by Mark Protosevich, who actually had written I'm Legend and Thor and the Old Boy remake, huh. starring Jennifer Lopez, Vincent D'Onofrio, and Vince Vaughn. And it's about a social worker, played by Jennifer Lopez, named Catherine Dean, who helps her patients by entering their minds. And she does that through an experimental project that allows her to establish a link between her and the patient. This psychological thriller features Catherine Dean entering the mind of Carl Starger, played by Vincent D'Onofrio, a serial killer who has hidden a kidnapped girl away in a glass tube that slowly is filling with water in order to drown her. And Catherine and FBI detective Novak, played by Vince Vaughn, are in a race against time to save her. Her name is Julia Hickson. He is the only one that knows where she is. If he was conscious, do you think that he would tell you where she is? Are you sure? I'm sure. You bring in this monster, and you're asking her to go into that mind. Prior to this, my only experience with Tarsum Singh was a movie he made in 2011 called Immortals, which I... Which we saw together. Did we see that together? Yeah, we did. Oh, okay. I forgot. It was just in Ottawa, wasn't it? I, oh, I can't remember. Like, I distinctly remember we walked out of theater and we were talking about, like, first of all, the visuals, like the whole vanilla sky thing. Yeah. But also the the pitbull roaster, based, like, literally this thing where they put a person in and then they roast them slowly. I don't remember this. <laughs> oh, you don't? Okay, that was one of the... 
maybe I remembered it wrong, but I distinctly remember, and I'm pretty positive, was that they had this prisoner, and they had this, like, bronze bull oh, that they locked people yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They slowly roasted him alive over the fire. Yeah, because that movie has uh, Mickey Rourke as this um, sort of made-up mythological character named uh, Heracleon or something. And uh, it was the movie was sort of... It, it it was forced out into theaters, I'll say, because I think um, Henry Cavill's team wanted to get him in front of audiences when the casting news about him playing Superman was still really fresh. Can't remember if this came out before Man of Steel or if it was the other way around, but they both came out around the same time, like within a few months of each other. So clearly they were trying to capitalize on him being in the public eye. Um, but I remember just being frustrated because it felt... It felt very stylistic. Obviously, it's something Tarsum Singh would have been known for at the time, 2011. <laughs> um, I hadn't seen The Cell or um, The Fall, uh, either of his two uh, prior films. So I wasn't familiar with with his style at all. But I found it like a lot that that classic kind of dig of like all style, no substance, because I was also coming into it, too, from like being really familiar with Greek myth and feeling like, yeah, like, yeah. like he was glossing over a lot of the the more important kind of uh, uh, background of Greek myth to kind of tell a pretty rote sort of gladiator ripoff of a story almost. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think we should also mention that, like, in terms of mythical gods and creatures, I think there's more creative license in that. Um, genre than any other genre in film. True, yeah, yeah. Now, now that I'm coming back to it, like, many years later, I, I can see what Tarsum was going for, and obviously, having now seen The Cell, that kind of fills it in even more, because I'm like, okay, I get he's not necessarily interested in giving you all the answers, or, you know, he's he's trying to prompt you to do a little bit of work on your own, and obviously The Cell is, is probably far better at that than Immortals. Yeah. Because at least you have relatively, like, you know, in Catherine Dean, Jennifer Lopez's character, you have a more interesting character than any of the kind of typical hero types and villain types in Immortals. Yeah, agreed. So Tarsum Singh was a music video director before he went to film, and I think that's really obvious in, a, in his work. So he, he does a really great job of doing visuals, symbolism, color contrasts, a lot of visual storytelling goes into it. And when The Cell was released, um, that's what it was praised for. It was praised for the artistic direction, both the costumes and music. It was actually nominated for an Oscar for Best Makeup. But it was also criticized for the lack of suspense for something that was supposed to be a thriller. And maybe some poor casting choices. Remember, this is when Jennifer Lopez, I think her music career was I think, kind of starting to take off. And she wasn't really known as an actress. And, you know, people were kind of doubting her ability somewhat. People just thought she was, you know, really pretty. But again, no substance. Um, I disagree with that. I think her in the in a right role is really good. And we saw that with that movie uh, a couple years ago uh, with the strippers. Oh, uh, Hustlers. Yes, Hustlers. However, your favorite, Roger Ebert, gave this film four stars. Well, he did, yeah. And I, I I went back and I read his review after watching The Cell earlier this week. And, um, you know, I, I as usual, I find myself agreeing with him. Like, I'm, I'm coming into this now years after kind of being disillusioned with Tarsum Singh's work. And now I'm, <laughs> I think I'm getting a more of appreciation for it. Compared to Immortals, for example, The Cell... 
really makes a strong case for mm-hmm. why the visuals are so out there and so uh, vibrant and there's a good reason for that like in any other fbi serial killer style thriller movie visuals like this would feel really out of place but because we're dealing with the mind and characters exploring each other's minds and especially the mind of a schizophrenic serial killer the one played by d'onofrio the the movie really backs up why everything is so completely insane and and tarsum also works in a lot of like his very specific influences specifically like the Persian, Middle Eastern, Indian style of production design that you really don't see anywhere else. He put it in Immortals too. I think he does so in the fall from what I've seen. Um, and you really don't see sets or costumes or anything like that anywhere else. So Ebert actually called it one of the best films of the year, which I kind of disagree with because I think 2000 was a really strong year, but I do agree it's a good film. He called it, quote, a bizarre mixture of science fiction and serial murders, mind games and pop psychology, wild images and haunting special effects. And I think that alone is like enough to catch your attention because I I can't stress enough how good the visual effects are because I don't see them a lot in many other movies. Uh, One of the movies that this the cell gets compared to a lot is Silence of the Lambs because it deals with similar material where you have this sort of SMM based serial killer who goes after young woman, plays these mind games. Uh, There's a there's a race against time to find the victim and there's a race to capture the antagonist. Although in this movie, they do it fairly on and I'm glad they kind of get it over with. But as you said, the visuals, I mean. Like sometimes when we think of the mind, it we think of images, right? And it's just more about emotion. And I think a lot of the makeup and a lot of the costumes are very out there, but they're meant to evoke a certain emotion from you. And most of that time for me, it was fear. And, and watching it again now, it is still kind of terrifying. Yeah, like especially the, the first time that Catherine Dean melds her mind with Carl Stargers and she ends up in this sort of haunted house type environment where she sees these um, these prison cells filled with um, examples of his previous victims who have all been made up to look like kind of broken down dolls mm-hmm. and they're sort of moving in this herky jerk sort of way and then one of the the women who's like done up well she's played by a female bodybuilder comes after mm-hmm. her and like throws her throws Catherine over her shoulder takes her to see the kind of idealized version of Carl Starger and he's there in this very like Middle Eastern slash Indian palace throne room type environment and he's all done up like Xerxes in the movie 300 yeah, or something yeah. and you know shaved head lots of uh, metal bits on his body lots of mascara lots of mascara this massive like curtain thing that's kind of affixed to his costume that sort of moves with him and sweeps all over the set it's yeah visually arresting so um, the visual that I remember and that scared me the most was the one with the horse and I think that one I think people mention the most so the story goes that Carl is this sort of innocent child who is a victim of a very, very abusive father. And in this dream sequence, Catherine Dean enters his mind and she sees a horse in front of her. And it's this like perfectly beautiful horse. And she sees the kid version of Carl Starger. And this is the point where like, I think the relationship between her and Carl is really important because there's a younger 
version of Carl that she connects with and is able to at least solve the mystery that way. And so all of a sudden, I think there's a tick in the background and this kid runs up to her and pushes her away. And as he pushes away, the clocks stop and this sort of glass partition comes down and basically slices the horse uh, in like into like 10 parts and then it separates. So you see all the insides of the horse. Meanwhile, the horse's heart is still beating and it's still making noises. I thought that was, first of all, terrifying. And second of all, I, I think you can kind of see a little bit of like this, the old CGI showing its age. But I think it's still so effective. A little bit. I, th- I would say that effect has aged really well, considering it came out in 2000. And, yeah. you know, there have been plenty of movies that were made around that time that have not aged very well at all. Like, Agreed. comparatively, the everything from the, the lighting effects on the, the CGI uh, body parts to the animation, all of that, it, it does feel very real still. So I should mention the costume design was by was done by a Japanese lady called Eiko Ishioka, who, by the way, interesting note, designed the uniforms for Team Canada at the 2002 Salt Lake Olympics. Huh. That's an interesting factoid. <laughs> yeah. And so she was a graphic designer, uh, eventually branched out into all kinds of art. Um, she actually won an Oscar for Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh my god! Okay, because I was just watching a re- like a long form video review of Bram Stoker's Dracula by Coppola yesterday. In fact, oh wow, and, what a coincidence! And they like so I watched the cell two days ago, and I watched this long form review of uh, Dracula uh, the next day. And of course, you don't talk about Coppola's Dracula without talking about that prologue sequence where Gary Oldman as Dracula is dressed up in this suit of armor that looks like basically what would happen if you peel the skin off a human body. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just got this like elaborate red muscled kind of texture Mm -hmm. to it that goes all over the, the suit of armor. And that's almost exactly what the special mind meld suits look like in this movie so it makes so much sense that it's the same designer in both times yeah and so she won that year and then she ended up working with tarsam singh for basically all of his films including the uh the fall and so i i think that's why there's a lot of continuity in his films because he uses the same person over and over again. And it's interesting you mentioned that the the Bram Stoker part because it is true like the suits that they wear to go into this like mind mail machine really look like like a muscle uh structure of a human person. Yeah, yeah just like those old diagrams that It's the ones that you see in like bi- uh, biology textbooks. And so there's there's a bit of rawness in that. And the other sort of scene that you kind of contrast it with is when Carl Starger, uh, you get flashbacks and you kind of see what he went through. And there's a scene where he, the one of the first victims he kills, he puts her in bleach. So she's like completely white. He puts her on this like really clean aluminum table that's super bright. And then because he's got like rings uh, embedded in his back, he hangs himself up. And the contrast between like that rustic metal and the white versus the dream sequence where it's like very artsy, very flowy with all the cotton and all the material. I love that contrast. I think it is such a great storytelling tool to separate these two very different settings. You know, everything in the real world is with the exception of maybe the suits that they that they wear in that special facility 
Um, everything is very cold and clinical mm-hmm. and grounded, whereas, you know, the, the mind mind scenes are just like total flights of fancy. And you're never in doubt over where you are in the story. Agreed. And so, which is why, like, some of the criticism back then makes me scratch my head a little. So people criticize it for a lack of suspense. I found it kind of suspenseful. Well, I mean, I, I think you plot wise, you're pretty confident that... Vince Vaughn's character, for example, is going to find the girl at the end. You know, that's kind of the way these these movies work. If if there's a if there's one girl left in jeopardy, then they're probably going to save her at the end, unless it's like a really mm-hmm. <laughs> like bleak sort of art house movie where they're trying to make a point by having the victim die at the end or something. Um, so yeah, I can see why maybe that felt a little bit formulaic or you know overly familiar. But I thought. I thought the tension was good, like, especially when, you know, the bodybuilder lady kidnaps Catherine Dean in the dream world. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when the glass cage that's holding the victim starts filling up with water and they're in this race against time to to find the location, I thought that was pretty suspenseful. Yeah. And even the scene where they introduce uh, Carl Steger, the scene I talked about where he hangs himself in the ceiling uh, and, and, bas- and masturbates over the bleached dead body of the first victim um i thought that was terrifying too so i don't know where they came from but i do think sometimes things are so upsetting that people think they get too caught up in it and they kind of miss the point and it becomes so effective that they just turned off by it the best example of that that comes to mind would be david lynch's work where you know, David Lynch will include these moments in an otherwise normal seeming story, like Twin Peaks is an obvious example, where it's just a complete, like, total jump into the supernatural that you're mm-hmm. not expecting. Mm-hmm. And if you're not kind of on his wavelength, it might cause, like, a casual viewer to sort of disengage and be like, oh, I don't understand what's happening anymore. And they may not, they whatever tension might have actually been there, they're kind of, they're not feeling anymore. It straddles the line between, like, becoming weird and interesting to you being disinterested because you don't understand it. There's a real yeah, fine line. Yeah, it's a end. fine line. Yeah. Uh, the other criticism was bad casting. So I, I still have my gripes about Vince Vaughn. He's just not very convincing no matter what role he plays. <laughs> but I thought Jennifer Lopez was fine. And Vincent D'Onofrio, again, like, I just appreciate his work so much more. And he was kind of the reason we ended up with this movie because we kind of want to do like a six degrees of Kevin Bacon when we do these episodes. Yeah. And he showed up in the player and he was wonderful. And in this movie, he kind of plays like kind of like a disgruntled messed up guy as well, but completely different. Oh, yeah. And like, you know, he's using his what one one of the things about Vincent D'Onofrio is just the size of him. Like you, yeah. you, no matter where he is in a in anything that in any of his recent work, like his dimensions are just so imposing that whatever scene you put him in, you're like, whoa, okay, watch out. Is he like a physically big guy? Because Tim Robbins is huge, I know that, but he doesn't have that sort of presence on the screen. He always plays like a very timid, small character, even though he's like six foot five or whatever. And D'Onofrio, remember, he plays Kingpin in the Daredevil series. And in that, he looks huge, too. Yeah. It, well, it, so quick Googling. I mean, I don't know how this, the, how uh, accurate this is. It's saying that uh, D'Onofrio is 6'3". So, okay, so he's he's pretty big. Yeah. But. So in the, in the case of the player, like, Robbins has the height advantage on him. But then 
you don't he's that was maybe earlier in in D'Onofrio's career he didn't have as much kind of like bulk bulk to him so maybe maybe Robbins ended up kind of almost looking like he was on the same height and like camera tricks and camera perspective and stuff can can contribute that to that too Mm -hmm. but yeah certainly like everything D'Onofrio has done in the past I mean starting in like maybe Full Metal Jacket Mm. the Stanley Kubrick movie like uh, that uh, that on he's he's always like a really imposing person on the screen i don't think he gets enough credit for what he does no and and uh i you know you see him in daredevil and you might if you're not familiar with his other work you might think oh you know he's just your standard villain character but i feel like the he puts there's always some extra dimension there it's you know it's never a it's never a two-dimensional performance i agree i agree and i, I think he's one of those actors that can really embody physically the character um, kind of like how Christian Bale does it, except he, D'Onofrio, in my opinion, is more of a chameleon, maybe because, you know, he's never played like a real leading man role, like a mainstream, you know, good guy True. role. Maybe that's why we don't recognize him. And I think maybe that's a conscious decision on his part for his career. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, you've, you if you're Christian Bale, for example, I mean, it, it's, it can be easy to get a bit typecast in those leading man type of things. As much as, as Christian Bale is always trying to, like, buck that trend and do other stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can, like, once you see him on the screen, you're always like, oh, that's Christian Bale, no matter if he's, like, 100 pounds or 200 pounds, you know? Um, what did you think of J-Lo and, and Vince Vaughn, man? I, like, I, I like J-Lo in this. I... Obviously, you can tell that she is earlier in her career and... There's less pretension about her, I think. Yeah, there's less pretension, maybe a little bit less kind of technical skill as an actor. I kind of like that rawness, though, because of the character she plays. Yeah, yeah. She's a social worker who clearly has some sort of damaged past. Yeah, but they don't kind of obsess over it because it's kind of... It's besides the point. Yeah, it's beside the point. It doesn't really figure into this story uh, a whole lot, but... I mean, yeah, I can see how some people might find some of her delivery maybe a bit wooden or or something, but it's not distracting. No, I don't think the script was that great either, though. Eh? Yeah, and, and and plus, this is a movie where the dialogue is not really the most important part. Like, if we're talking, if we're dealing with like a Tarsum movie, then <laughs> we'll give you a pass on this one, Tarsum. <laughs> yeah, if there's one thing I've learned about Tarsum movies, it's that dialogue is really not not the uh, the forte. <laughs> yeah, and and the writer Mark Protosevich, uh, who did. I Am Legend and Thor and Old Boy. Especially I Am Legend. I, I didn't particularly like I Am Legend. I've never read the book, but I always found it the screenplay and, and the dialogue kind of wooden. Not that there was a lot of dialogue in it anyway. Mm. Um and and Thor I thought was a very generic superhero film. So No, no. The first Thor was very much like it felt a lot more like three episodes of TV just kind of chained together. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay, fair enough. And Vince Vaughn? Yeah, I liked him less than J-Lo. I mean, I feel like he he's made a few stabs over the years at these more dramatic characters. And it kind of, it works, but only a little bit. Yeah, and I was going to say too, like, you watch him in this movie. And then you watch him in True Detective, where he kind of plays like a sort of stubborn male authority figure. And I don't feel like he's grown a lot over that time. No, not really. I I know he did something. It was some sort of indie movie called Dragged Across Concrete, where he was trying to. It, it was more. It was a recent movie, but he was he was trying to go more into the villain stuff. 
you know, beyond what he did in that season of True Detective. But other than that, I, you know, he's not really the first name that comes to mind when you're thinking of like no. commanding authority figure FBI agent type characters. And uh, what was that Andrew Garfield war film where he plays like the oh um, Hacksaw Ridge? Yeah, Hacksaw Ridge. So people praised him for that one. And even then in that one, I found him very kind of wooden and unbelievable. And and somehow he just doesn't fit that role. Like in my mind, maybe it's just, you know, Wedding Crashers being so successful. In my mind, he's always been a very much a comedian more than a serious quote-unquote serious character actor. Yeah, some comedians can pull off that transition and others can't. I mean, it, yeah, people always talk about like how we have to give comedians the chance to to do the dramatic work and not kind of typecast them. But I don't know. I mean, so some of them can make the make that jump. And I wouldn't say Vaughn is, is high on the list. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't know if you caught that, uh, but uh, Peter Skarsgård is in this movie too. Yeah, very briefly. He plays the, the, the boyfriend. The profile is so like distinct though, right? Yeah, yeah. He plays the boyfriend of the, um, the girl who goes missing. Um, St- uh, Starker's last victim, but uh, yeah, he he doesn't get a whole lot of scenes. In, no, so no. It's, so you, know, you can't really appreciate him very much. So I I did a little research on this, and because we both kind of rented this on VOD, we didn't get the special features that come with it, so we didn't get the director's commentary. And one of the things he said was, basically, had I known Peter Skarsgård was going to be this good, I would have put him in more scenes because, like, he was kind of a, a, a little unknown back then. This is like 20, 21 years ago now. Right. And so that was actually interesting. And again, another case for physical media, because in these streaming services, we never get the extra stuff that I think brings so much more value to how the film is made and, and what sort of purpose and direction the director wanted to go into. Um, they always say like this movie is one of those movies that probably would have done a lot better today than before. I can see that. Yeah. Well, like you think about you think about the way it opens, like, you know, if you if you were going into this movie and you knew that it had a serial killer FBI investigation plot line, the scene that greets you is this highly stylized uh, sequence <laughs> desert scene, <laughs> desert scene of Jennifer Lopez uh, moving through the desert on the back of this horse, wearing this flowing white gown and then having this conversation with a kid in like a, an oasis type setting uh and he turns into like a seal monster <laughs> towards the end of it like it's <laughs> yeah. you know yeah that cgi effect if was you fun. if that was the one cgi effect that didn't didn't age very well but i mean if you walked into that movie in 2000 and you didn't have enough context you might think that the projectionist had mixed the reels up or something <laughs> <laughs> fair enough yeah I, I i think the sort of reaction that you get is that because I think in the 2000s, just from my own personal experience and memory alone, police procedurals were a bit more cookie cutter. Like it was A, B, C, D. You kind of followed this linear path from like victim, discovery, investigation, and then, you know, chase of the criminal type deal. Yeah. Now I think, especially, you know, thinking about the horror films we've had lately, including uh, Midsommar. Um, and, and a lot of these uh, horror films that tend to be a little non-linear and do a lot of visual storytelling. You watched, uh, was it Suspiria? Yes. Yeah, so you, you could probably speak more to that 
from that sort of, you know, appreciation of cinema. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think generally these days there's there's definitely more appetite for the kind of big swings that Mm -hmm. would have been harder sells back in the day. I Mm -hmm. feel like if you can't get a movie like The Cell onto big screens these days, you can certainly find a streamer who's willing to pick it up. Yeah, fair enough. When I watched this again, I was kind of surprised by its runtime. It's only about 110 minutes, I think. Visually, I didn't feel quite satisfied because I feel like this could have been easily a two, two and a half hour movie. I think he could have dragged it out a bit more, fleshed out the characters a bit more. I would have liked to revisit, you know, Carl Starger's mind and Catherine Dean's mind. And just to see more visual representations of their past trauma and how they sort of connect with each other. Because I I think they sort of downplayed the connection between young Carl Starger, the innocent kid, and Jennifer Lopez. I think that was really central. But for whatever reason, uh, we we didn't get enough of it. But so if there's one thing that I would change is probably that. I I probably would have made this movie longer. And it would have, I think, been one of the few movies where I would have been able to sit through it, even if it was longer. Yeah, like what did you make of the the final sequence where they're kind of they're intercutting between Vince Vaughn mm-hmm. uh, finally narrowing down where the the last girl is being kept and a scene playing out in Catherine Dean's mind where she has both the young boy and the adult monster versions of Carl Starker battling it out in her mind and she's being depicted as this kind of angelic nun type character at first who then transforms into this avenging angel type of uh motif yeah 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 so no i'm i'm glad you brought that up because i felt that was a little too sudden too quick yeah i feel like they needed to they needed to tease that out a little bit more because it's like they they talk about how there's kind of the matrix rules in this universe where people who die in their dream die in real life that's kind of loosely the 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 guidelines for how this works so she's wrestling with whether or not to kill carl starger while he's present in her mind and there's some implication of like all right she wants to kill the monsters version of him but it also has the same effect on the kid and it feels like she kind of comes to uh she comes to accept that consequence at the end but because they're intercutting also with vince vaughn out in the you know, Bakersfield, California, wherever he is in this abandoned uh, industrial facility, uh, saving this girl, maybe it kind of that resolution of that plot line sort of took away from what Catherine was doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fair point. The thing with the Carl Starger storyline is there, there's a lot of catharsis in that final sequence where that you have the young kid versus his older self and they're kind of fighting each other. Um, you don't get the same with Jennifer Lopez's character when it's clear she has past trauma from, you know, events from before the movie. And I, I think I would have liked to see them coincide with each other because in the beginning of the movie, there's also this other kid who's in a coma that Catherine Dean is working on. And at the end of the movie, they sort of kind of tack it on, say, well, yeah, she helped him and he was all fine after that. I, I wish they expanded that a bit more. I wish that story and the story with Carl Starger was mixed together a little bit better. Yeah, like I kept expecting, you know, when they when they showed the fact that the the mind lab had three side by side stations for people to 
enter each other's minds. Mm-hmm. They showed that like, oh, we've had they, one of the uh, one of the technicians says, oh, we we haven't been very successful having three people together in one mind before. And then as it's the last ditch thing, they send Vince Vaughn into Starker's mind with Jennifer Lopez so that he can save her because she's been, you know, taken over by his personality or his consciousness. And that's like a a relatively brief sequence. And so I figured, okay, they've introduced the idea that they can do three people at once. So will the resolution of the main mm-hmm. kind of mystery or plot have to do with bringing Edward, the young kid in the coma, yeah, yeah, into yeah. Carl Starger's mind and using something about that kid's relate, existing relationship with Catherine to help solve the problem with Starger. Yeah, I, I totally expected the same thing. The part where... Um Vince Vaughn enters the mind and he ends up being captured and he gets tortured in like the worst way imaginable. <laughs> I also thought that concluded too quickly. Like he, he's being tortured on this table. He's literally getting disemboweled a lot, like, you know, as he's, you know, alive. And he's trying to bring Jennifer Lopez back to reality. And he basically, it's one of those like quick movie things where he like starts screaming out things that remind her of her real life and she kind of snaps too. I also thought that that was too quick. That was too easy. Um, It was too convenient. Right. Um, So this is why I thought, you know, this could have been a two and a half hour movie because you could have, you know, had all three of them in limbo for a little longer. I think the relationships and some of the, the visuals would be a lot more interesting. I think Jennifer Lopez's arc would be a little more smooth rather than so uneven and, and up and down all the time. And I read this through uh, Film School Rejects, who, who made notes on the director's commentary, that there was some issue with Tarsim Singh's vision because he wanted to include deserts into his dream sequences. Okay. But I think the producers of the studio didn't want that. They didn't want all the, like, the Middle Eastern and the, all the ethnic uh, sort of influences in the film. Mm, okay. And because they were afraid that it would cause disconnect, disconnect between the material and, and American viewers. I think I read something about that. So this was a smaller budget film where I would think most of the budget went into costume design and makeup. (laughs) (laughs) And so I don't think, you know, story-wise and and character-wise, developing things was, you know, as big or as pressing as a concern. I saw your letterbox review and I saw four stars and I was kind of, both happy and surprised that you liked it so much yeah because because i was kind of half expecting you to not like it very much i yeah i, I really i went in very cold i didn't even watch the trailer before uh, i screened it the other night yes. so aren't you uh glad that you didn't though like i said before i had a reasonable idea of what to expect because i had you know being familiar with tarsum's cinematography specifically i i figured that would enter into it some way um so yeah that that much was fine but yeah, no, it. I, I actually, I was kind of debating whether to go to four and a half because. Oh wow! I, so I why did, not have four and a half? I, I guess the the kind of genericness of the FBI murder plot, right. kind of pulled it down a little bit for me. Um, even though it is important to kind of ground all of the fanciful stuff, um, you know, the the two wouldn't work on their on their own. They kind of have to be a a unified whole. 
um, if that makes sense. But it's the kind of thing that you really don't see very often. And I think it it deserves an extra kind of thumbs up for that. And it, it definitely proves that there's more going on with that Tarsim Singh guy than I actually gave him credit for. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make me like Immortals anymore um, than, I, than I already don't. I, I'm just glad that this movie held up, that it was just as visually exciting as I had remembered it. If it was released a little er- later, you know, it, it, when DVDs and Blu-rays had like a big boom mm. for a while, yep. this would have quickly become a cult classic. Yeah, like around like 2005, that was kind of yeah, when... Like, just a few years later, yeah, maybe. That could have been a big moment for it. I mean, we literally saw back around 2005, the DVD market was so huge that... Something like Hellboy, for example, totally different sort of movie in many ways. Yeah, like gave, gave it its sequel. Yeah, they literally gave it a sequel on the strength of the DVD sales of that movie. And of course, then by the time the the sequel came out in two thousand and eight, the that boom with the DVD market had cooled down significantly. And that's one of the reasons why we never got the Guillermo del Toro third film in that series that we wanted. I also didn't think Golden Army was particularly good though and, well i mean i yeah i thought the first film was way better yeah I can, I can see that i mean i i'm a defender of it because it's a del toro movie and because i love hell hellboy that much <laughs> and the two of those movies together are so much better than what we got with the david harbour version a couple of years ago um but that's you know we've already gone into that that whole sad story but you know circling back to the cell um <laughs> i could see you know if the timing had been right you could have earnestly expected a possible sequel to the cell if it had done the kind of business on dvd that's fun fact there is a sequel what oh (laughs) twist (laughs) straight to dvd the cell 2 really uh completely different cast oh okay um it is considered one of the worst movies ever made oh boy okay okay i stand very much corrected (laughs) i'm looking this up right now oh god Yep. yep the cell 2 um, I was surprised to learn about this when I, when I went back and read the, the internets. I did not know that this was ever in the works or was a thing, but it is. The Cell 2. And yeah, it is. Wow. Unfortunate, I think that the Cell is tarnished by this sequel that we shall never ever talk about again. That we should forget ever existed. Um, if you read the plot, it makes no sense. I heard the visual effects were absolutely dog poop. And I'm I'm just going on like the the still from the trailer that pops up on IMDb. I mean, the thing looks like it looks it horrible. looks like it was shot on like uh, consumer grade DV cams from the from yeah. the mid 2000s. Like it's that's insane. Yeah. 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 That's too bad. I mean, it really it really kind of makes me feel like uh, who knows? I mean, uh, maybe maybe Netflix or, or somebody should give Tarsum some budget. He can go back and write this wrong. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. And I think with the technology and what we can do practical effects these days, it's, it would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if he's interested in that. I, I think he he's been doing probably he's not. gone back to doing more music videos and commercials lately after he did. Didn't he do a. um he did a Snow White movie for, yeah, I think it was Snow. No, it wasn't Snow White. It was, oh, a Sleeping Beauty movie with Julia Roberts and okay. um, Lily, one of the Lilies, <laughs> Lily Collins, I think. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that was his last like big studio movie. So uh, since then, he's been he's been back in the um, small screen or, you know, that that whole industry. So 
yeah, I don't know. I don't know what his next big release will be, if any. But I'm curious now. I mean, I now that I have this context from the cell. Yeah, I landed on the same score, four out of five. Really enjoyed it. Thought some things could have been done better, but definitely a movie that I totally enjoyed watching it. So if you're interested, I do recommend it. Rob, you recommend it as well. I do. Yeah. Uh, maybe the way to close this actually is to ask, what do you think the name? the cell refers to oh that's an interesting question that i never thought about I, I, i'm thinking about it now and i i don't have a clear-cut answer i mean i guess the literal answer might be the uh the prison that starker puts the girl in but that feels too kind of yeah i was gonna say the cell i thought would refer more to sort of the prison that starker's mind is in i guess so yeah because yeah. the cell now has a much more of a like a spy movie connotation now yeah yeah like a terrorist cell for example um, exactly exactly see 9-11 changed everything <laughs> and it's it, it's not like uh, it's not like there's any character who kind of comes in and says welcome to the cell this is where we enter people's minds or something or other <laughs> yeah 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 exactly exactly yeah that does it for this bonus episode of the extra buttery podcast i hope you enjoyed it the cell from 2000 directed by tarsum singh and we will have another you know fairly old movie lined up for our next extra bonus episode. Yeah, for our next bonus episode, we were thinking High Fidelity because uh, our connection was going to be Howard Shore, wasn't it? Uh, he's the... Uh, we're, we're sort of hopping around using a person from the cast or crew yes. from the, uh, the movie we've just discussed to sort of inspire us to check out something for the next bonus episode. So because mm -hmm. Howard Shore, of course, famously uh, the composer of Lord of the Rings, he worked on The Cell, so he also provided the score for High Fidelity, and that's something I haven't seen yet, so mm. I'm curious to uh, to check that out for the first time, and we can kind of uh, uh, totally change things up with more of a rom-com compared to this horror thriller. <laughs> uh, so look forward to that, uh, but until the next episode, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.